The stage is dark, but the conversation is just beginning. Welcome back to the Utah Symphony Utah Opera Ghost Light Podcast, a behind-the-curtain look into the world of classical music and the artists who make it. I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Today we're recording the special edition opera prelude, we're calling it. Uh, We're going to talk about flight, and this is an opportunity for you to, um, those of you who are not able to make the live preludes can listen to it, perhaps even on your way to the show. Most of you are probably not familiar with Jonathan Dove and April DeAngelis' 1998 opera, Flight. It was written in 1998 for the Glyndebourne Touring Company and then performed at Glyndebourne Main Stage in 1999. And uh, I certainly was not familiar with it before the last few years. It is a piece that had a pretty steady stream of productions for about its first 10 years of life. But since 2017, it's really um, caught on. And it's even more... Um, useful, if you will, now during this time of COVID because it's just an ensemble piece, 10 characters, and no chorus. And of course, we've discovered in the last couple of years that choral singing can be one of the big challenges. So uh, really interesting to see how this piece is having. I I don't know. Can you call it a revival when a piece is only 20 some odd years old? I don't know. I think so. I think so. I'm also fascinated, Carol, by the context of this piece. It's written to take place in an airport terminal, which in 1998 was a very different space than it is right now. I mean, think about these intervening decades. You've had 9-11, which changed air travel forever. And then you've had COVID, which has changed air travel again in somehow a new way, but also forever. I, he could have never predicted that the context would be so fraught as it is now, but seeing something taking place in an airport terminal means more than it ever has, and certainly more than it did in the 90s. Also, um, the circumstances that the characters in, in, uh, encounter during their time in this airport terminal, and we'll talk a little bit more about that specifically, is quite parallel to the COVID situation we've been in, where we've been kind of feeling trapped mm-hmm. in whether it was the actual lockdown in the spring of 2020 or these times where we feel like we can't make the normal choices of our entertainment or it's all um, a microcosm kind of of the life we're all living. And like you say, Jonathan had no idea this was happening. He was just, he had a specific task that he was asked to do by Glyndebourne when he was commissioned. He did. They, so they asked him to write a, basically a modern day marriage of Figaro. And he, he agreed probably because it was an exciting challenge, but also he felt at the time, and I think probably still feels, that modernist composers don't embrace comedy very much anymore. It is in short supply. Yeah, that was his word, short supply, exactly, yeah. So he he took it on as a, like I said, not only a challenge, but I think as a reward to the opera world because he feels like we need more of this. So one of the... uh... Gen- the seeds of this piece came out of a news story. There was an immigrant, an Iranian immigrant, who spent 18 years of his life in Charles de Gaulle Airport. He yeah. got to France, didn't have the proper papers, could never leave the airport legally. He has since left the airport and is living in a shelter in Paris, I think, or France, somewhere. But uh, this was going on while this opera was being written. They heard this story and they were inspired by this idea, not telling the story exactly of this immigrant, uh, this refugee, but just the idea that someone's trapped in an airport and can never leave while everybody's coming in and out was fascinating to them. If you seems familiar, this is the 2004 film. The Terminal was also inspired by the story of this Starring Tom Hanks, right? Mira Nasiri, I think is his name. Nasiri, yeah. So uh, 
that was the genesis. The refugee is an important character. He, it's not an opera about the refugee. He's certainly the hub maybe on which things turn. Yeah, he's almost like a part of the set for me. He's part of the... He's part of this jail. He's part of this um, this closed space that no one can get out of. He's a feature of that, almost like a I don't want to say furniture, but he's 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 something that that exists in that space that they can reflect against and on. Of these ten characters that we see, three of them never leave the airport. Right. We have the refugee, and then the controller, mm-hmm. and the immigration officer. Right. And it's worth pointing out they all have very specifically chosen voice types. The controller is the very highest voice. She's coloratura soprano. She has a two and a half octave range from low G below middle C up to high D flat. Or is it even an F? It might even be almost three octaves. So we're talking like Queen of the Night range. Right, Queen of the Night, but then also the low side. The immigration officer is the other extreme. He's the lowest voice. And then the refugee is very unusual. Well, it's 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 this otherworldly use of the countertenor, which is this incredible voice type that I think is having a moment right now. Absolutely. I mean, there's... uh, the person who's singing The Refugee with us, remind me of his name? John Holiday. John Holiday. thank you. He's also one of the folks singing the countertenor part in Matthew O'Coin's Eurydice at the Met right now, which is, that's a separate story. It's Orpheus' sort of shadow, his sort of alter ego mm-hmm. that follows him around. You know, if you think about um, um, uh, Akhenaten, the main character in that is a countertenor, of course it all goes back to Britain's, I think, him making that role part of the 20th and 21st century opera experience with um, in Midsummer Night's Dream. With Oberon. With Oberon, yeah. I mean, it was an otherworldly choice he made for that role. And, and, I, and I think it works really well in this role, too, because it sets him so apart from everybody else. Absolutely. And um, keeps him from really connecting with everybody because he's always a little bit removed. Yeah, because because the, I'm, I'm and I don't mean this as, as to be critical. I think it's I think it's important and I think it's intentional. There's a strangeness to the countertenor voice. This sound coming out of a male body, it just it sets you on edge just a little bit because it's not common for our ears. It's becoming more so, but it's not something we're used to. So you mentioned Britain, Benjamin mm-hmm. Britten, arguably the greatest British composer. Of the 20th century. One of the greatest opera composers yes, of all time. For sure, yeah. for sure. I mean, we could talk about Peter Grimes for an hour and a half. Yep. We won't. That's, um, that's another podcast. Yeah. <laughs> How many times do we say that's another podcast um, in our podcast? At least four times per podcast, <laughs> okay. yeah. Uh, Britain, to me, I see a lot of uh, the operas of Britain in the way this piece is crafted. Yeah. With the, um, the, the, the characterization through vocal lines, all of this kind of stuff. There's some moments that look like Britain, even when you just look at the physical score. What are some of Jonathan Dove's other influences that you've run across? So I've seen in interviews where he was asked the question very plainly, your music has been described as an amalgam of John Adams and Leonard Bernstein. And he, he takes that as a compliment. And I think he does count Bernstein and John Adams as major influences. Adams as a quintessentially American voice, Bernstein as one of the great voices of the theater. And I do think he also finds a lot of uh, kinship with the recently departed Stephen Sondheim as well. Yeah, there's actually a spot that to me, when I every time I get to it and start playing it, I th- think into the woods. I can't help mm-hmm. it. It's one of it was, that was probably my first real experience with Sondheim, and it just seems drawn out. And then of course Bernstein's West Side Story is having a moment right now. It sure is. And there's some 
rhythmic and uh, musical moments that are very much like Bernstein. Well, you're really immersed in this score, Carol, as rehearsal pianist for this production, and you you said you you found Bernstein and Sondheim in there without even having to be told. You just sort of absolutely it was obvious. I mean, obviously, again, Sondheim and Bernstein being really in the consciousness of musicians Speaking right now. again of West Side Story, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. You know, you can't help but sort of, I've just heard West Side Story, right. the score, right. by watching the film a couple times. And um, so when it comes up in the piano part, you know, and which will eventually be the orchestra, you just can't help but hear that in the polyrhythms, in the in the hemiola, which is when you go, yeah, da, 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 da. That's mm-hmm. America. Everyone right. knows that. That's a hemiola when you go between um, groups of three and groups of two. And that happens throughout so much polyrhythm and com- complicated meters, which sound much easier when executed than they are to actually do. Yeah. How challenging is the vocal writing in this piece? Because as a as a non-singer, when I listen to it, some of it seems quite challenging indeed. Well, and this is going to be sort of a roundabout answer to your question. One of the things that Jonathan Dove does in his opera flight, which I think is also missing sometimes in modern operas, is he writes amazing ensembles. Mm -hmm. A lot of times, and we were talking about this the other day, um, modern operas are almost like accompanied group recitatives. They're like a play. The dialogue is, is, you know, and it's like as if we made a recitative out of our podcast. Dear Lord, never let that happen. No. So he Sounds writes these intricate paper. and amazing ensembles that are rhythmically complex. And if, um, you know, as I work with the singers, they say, oh, well, I get my pitch or my rhythm. I have to wait for this person's entrance. I said, look, don't pay attention to that. Everyone's going to do their best to get it all right. But if you wait for somebody's entrance and then they're an eighth note off, then you're an eighth note off and it's a domino effect. So it really is rhythmically probably one of the mm-hmm. most complicated things I've done in a while. Musically, it's less complicated, like pitch-wise and things. You, it's a little tricky because it's actually quite diatonic, meaning it kind of lies within key centers, yeah. different key centers that are juxtaposed very broadly and, and um, crunchily, but it's not chromatic. It's not a lot of where the heck do I get my pitch? I mean, it's in the chord, but you have to figure out which note of the chord you're going to glom onto. Mm-hmm. So that's probably the, the most complicated thing. But I love that because I love having these wonderful ensembles that we just, we they are reminiscent of the amazing finales of Mozart, especially in The Marriage of Figaro, which was, of course, the inspiration. And so it is a complicated piece. And then just the counting. We've spent a lot of time in coaching of just sort of um, I conduct and we just speak the text a lot because the pitches will come. It's just getting the music, at the, the, the entrances at the right moment. Do you think that this... This ensemble writing, this leaning on the ensemble is not just a way of sort of um, uh, highlighting how much these people are lumped in together by this circumstance in this airport, but also hearkening back to the comedies of the golden age in opera. I mean, comedies comedies almost always had ensemble pieces. The acts almost always ended with big ensemble set pieces. And what's great about those ensemble pieces in Mozart and in Flight you know, we're just talking about those two things right now, mm-hmm. just because that's the the two perspectives we're bringing up, is their ensemble writing, which isn't always um, connected. So the characters are having their own narratives at times that are layered upon one another. Yeah. And then it's the times when everybody comes together and there's some really amazing moments in the third act where they come together, sing the same music in a canon or in kind mm-hmm. of a round situation. Or just homophonically, that's when you start to realize that they are coming together as a group of people through this weird situation. It kind of leads me to talk a little bit about how 
um, it seems simple, but how carefully crafted the narrative is. You have three acts, and you have the first act that introduces everyone. So you have these couples that arrive, and they have music that is very specific to their situation. So everybody's music is quite different. Then you have the act ends with a crisis situation that sets up the problem. Then we come to the second act. We see the problem, this storm that has caused this delay. Not that any of us have ever been delayed in an airport by a storm. Never happened. Uh, Not out west. They're trapped in this airport by this electrical storm. And so the problem then, it actually kind of takes away their humanity. And they all just sort of um, devolve through the second act in this crisis. They don't handle the crisis well. And a lot – and they – make a lot of choices. There's fighting. There's um, some a little bit of hint of violence. It's a mini post-apocalypse, really. It is. It's a little bit, yeah. yes. Yeah. And then in the sec- the third act, then the sun comes out, and then everyone kind of um, picks up the pieces of this apocalyptic evening mm-hmm. and then decides where they're going to go with it. Right. And so it's actually really quite fascinating to just see the, the journey. Everyone takes a journey and comes out a little bit different, with the exception of our uh, – of our um, of our refugee and of our, our refugee and our controller and our immigration officer. They stay. They stay yeah. and they uh, maintain. Mm-hmm. And you love the way it ends. I mean, not to it's not a spoiler alert, but I, we don't want to give it away. But there's well, this. Uh, we assume that if they're in the airport, everyone's going to leave. Right, and everybody, in fact, does. And it's there's this really poignant moment, which I won't quote because you need to see it in context between the controller and the refugee. Just this this question that sort of leaves things open-ended and almost like you wonder if this experience is going to repeat with a different cast of characters and those three managing it the way they did before. I think it's a beautiful moment and a perfect way to end this ensemble piece with the ensemble having departed. It also ends very musically static. Right. The last page in my score, which is probably about the last two minutes, there's just one orchestral texture that just hovers while the controller and refugee finish out the mm-hmm. narrative, mm-hmm. if you will. I mean, it's very it's very um, dot, dot, dot to be continued. It's an ellipsis, absolutely, yeah. yeah. Another musical moment that you brought up is, the, is when the last of the planes actually takes off, um, which is this big rush of sound and and you and I talked about what that probably meant for the story and we theorized and I think we're right that it's that it's intended to be it's intended to to frame what they can't have for the rest of the evening like it's the last it's the last plane out they're not on it it's this distant mountain that they can't climb it's this faraway experience that they'll never get to have at least they feel that way during the night and I think that's an a really incredible musical moment as well, the way he depicts that through sound. It really is. We've, we had several discussions about there's this moment that may seem a little bit comical if you just read the libretto by itself, but in the first act, everyone's gathered and a flight leaves. It's the flight that the Minsk woman mm-hmm. and Minsk man are meant to be on. The man gets on the flight. He gets on the flight, right. Um, they are traveling to Minsk. Mm-hmm. They're not Minsk right. rights. There's this huge thing where the the ensemble sings about the plane is taking off. It's starting to roll. It's roaring. And it seems so strange because we we see – I remember as a kid watching my first plane take off, and it was amazing. You know, those days when you would go to the airport and peer out the window. Yeah. And I still see kids doing that at the airport. But we've become quite blasé about air travel. And so the idea that these um, characters are filled with wonder at the fact that this plane is taking off – I mean, if you think about it, it is, a, it is a thing of wonder that planes can fly. I mean, I know it's the Bernoulli effect and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. There's lots of physics and 
you know, it's the way it works. But still, it seems mystical. And uh, we were all thinking, well, how strange. They've seen planes take off before. Why is it such a big deal? But I think it's the juxtaposition of watching a plane take off. It ends up being the last one that leaves for that day. And then they can't take off, so they're trapped. So they saw what they wanted. They couldn't have it. And then there are several other moments later on when the refugee kind of discloses his story, and I won't. I won't spoil that. Uh, there's a whole thing about a plane takeoff in there that is his experience of a plane taking off, which is not joyful and exciting. No. And then we have that music repeat from the first act mm-hmm. when the planes do take off and everyone leaves. Yeah, there's a sense of wonder and it's juxtaposed with the sense of abandonment that permeates the rest of the show. They're abandoned by technology because of nature. But but she's literally abandoned also by her husband, quite literally. So it's macro and micro happening yeah, in the, the same. Man yeah, it's happening leaves. in the same the same instance. And I, you know, hearkening back to our discussion a few minutes ago about how different air travel is now, Carol and I, Carol, you and I remember days when you could walk with your friend or loved one to the gate. Yes. Say goodbye to them at the gate and then watch out the window as their plane leaves. That is. That doesn't happen. Over. We That's, have the. Anybody younger than us probably doesn't even remember that being a real thing. It was a thing at a, for a time. It's like rotary dial phones when you see those yeah. in, a sh- in a film. I was watching When Harry Met Sally on one of my flights recently at the holidays, and there's a whole scene where she's saying goodbye to her boyfriend at the right. uh, as she gets on a flight. And I was thinking, wow, that's strange. He's not getting on this flight. He's just hanging out to yeah. say goodbye. Yeah. Let's take a quick break here, and we'll be back in a few minutes to talk more about Flight by Jonathan Dove and April DeAngelis. No matter who you are or what you like, Utah Symphony and Utah Opera have the music for you, which is why we have a range of performances from Pops to Puccini, from films to Jean Francais. See which option is right for you at usuo.org calendar. All right, well, Carol, speaking of things we talked about at the beginning of this, we talked about this being a comedy and this being a really important thing to Dove because he doesn't think there's a lot of comedies being written today, and he's right about that. I want to know if you think this show is funny. Does it work as a comedy or is it more or less than that? No, I think it's really funny. And I was listening to, I was watching a video um, of another production and enjoying the crowd reaction. It was really some uproarious laughter. There are just moments, and you know, some of this as comedy always has to, you know, as comedy always depends on timing. And so there are places where the musical timing is perfect. Mm-hmm. And there are places where you have to maybe expand it for a little bit of business. And you can tell there's a little rest in the music and they can do what they need to do. But there's a lot of funny reactions as you watch these couples trying to work through their lives. Uh, one of the funniest situations early on is a, this older woman. She's a she's a, a 50-some woman who's supposed to be having a rendezvous with um, she's actually not getting on a plane. She's waiting for her fiance to come in, who is somebody they don't say how they met. I think, she, well, actually, he's a bartender in New York, and I think she may have been on vacation and met him there. And he's much younger than she is. She's waiting for him. She expects, has this expectation for the relationship, and she doesn't want to engage with anyone. So she says, if anyone comes to talk to me, I'm just going to pretend I speak French. <laughs> so the 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 steward and stewardess, which is literally what they called, I know we call them flight attendants, that's the proper term, but they call it steward and stewardess. Actually, no one has a name except for Bill and Tina in this event because they want to keep them as um, archetypal as possible. So the steward and stewardess come in and try to engage with the older woman, and she just throws out random French words at them, like Veuve Clicquot, Jacques Chirac. (laughs) 
And it's just very silly and ridiculous. And there's a lot of moments like that. There's also a lot of Britishisms. Mm-hmm. And anybody who's watched British comedy knows there's a certain, I would say there's kind of a certain edge to it that maybe is not so much a part of American comedy. They're just, right. It's just a little bit different. So that edginess does show through. Let me ask you something else about Dove. Um, so he's, this succeeds as a comedy. I'm, I'm wondering what you think about it musically because we talked about his influences before and certainly, you know, the influence from Adams could be the, uh, the ability to take this minimal soundscape and be able to quickly pivot between absolute stasis and just this inexorable motoric movement. Like it's, minimal music can either be completely static or moving in a way that you just cannot deny. But his other influences, Bernstein, Sondheim, that's all about tunes. You walk out of a Sondheim show or West Side Story and you're singing for weeks. Does this show have both of those things? Are there singable tunes in this as well? There are. You know, when I'm working on a piece, I get bits stuck in my head, and it's really awkward when it's recitative because those are never very tuneful, and I'm not mm-hmm. just referring to modern music, but, you know, like Donizetti, and I'll get a, a recitative loop going in my They're head. They're expository. It's meant to be. Yeah. yeah. But this one has some real – it has real set pieces mm-hmm. as opposed to being just kind of a – um working its way through a, as, as a through-composed piece. There are moments that kind of end, and they are acceptable, acceptable. They are acceptable. There are not a lot of arias. Really, only the controller and the refugee have an actual aria, right. which, again, probably speaks to their the structure of the piece being them separate from the rest. Right. The other people have, the other characters have moments of solo singing, but nothing that you can really pull out as a full-on aria. That's all, That's actually not true. The Minsk woman has a really beautiful aria in Act Two. Um, you know, we forgot, to, She. We. you said that uh, the Minsk man actually abandons her, but in a way she abandons him it's by true. not leaving. It's true. Because she's afraid to leave. That's true. So anyway, side note. Uh, so there's a big conga sort of tropical number conga line almost happens at the end of the first act. And right. that is definitely something that people will leave. And I would be surprised if I don't hear people sort of humming that in the intermission uh, spaces. And um, another place, there's a really beautiful moment when um, the Minsk woman, well, something unusual happens with her and everyone reacts to it in a, in a space of wonder and amazement. And that is a really beautiful tune. I don't want to give it away, so I can't really no. Don't sing give it. Lyrics? No, I won't sing it. I would never do that. <laughs> so yeah, there's like musical catchy things. Uh, one of the tunes that I always get stuck in my head actually is the second at control aria where she sings. She comments on the storm. It's fierce night, and all of this crazy stuff happens. You talked about the motor rhythm. The motor rhythm in the second act is just the storm driving everyone's animal passions into a weird place. And then everyone, all the women join in on Fierce Night for the big climax of that last, of that second act. And so it's a tune. Again, it's a tune that I'll hear in the lobby almost as we go Mm -hmm. into the intermission between two and three. Well, Carol, I know you and I have talked about... um your preludes before and I asked you once how you typically end them and you said awkwardly because usually the clock is up against you and that's yeah. not the case here. It's so time for the audience. You've today. got a chance for a wonderful benedictory remark here. So what would you say to people in the audience, not just here in Utah, but anywhere in the U.S. that are inclined to be skeptical of contemporary opera, that they see the year 1998 and they think, that's not going to be for me. What do you say to them? That's so tricky. You know, I don't want to 
I, I don't want to feel that I have to spend my life being an apologist for modern opera. But I think sometimes we feel like we have to make a real case and say, hey, you know, this is an important topic or it's a story you love or it's an amazing production, you know. And those are all valid reasons to see an opera because it's an amazing drama or a piece of theater. But this one's an easy sell, I feel like. It's appealing. It's, there's a lot of cinematic quality to the music. We, you know, I love film music. You love film music. Mm-hmm. It's just very accessible. Uh, it helps that it's not super thornily atonal right. at all. There are places, the refugee often has some chromatic music, but most of it's really pretty accessible. And there's a lot of appealing orchestral color. The percussion is going to go to town. I mean, yeah. they are the feature in this piece. And then it's just a fun story. I mean, it's a, it's got all the things, you know, it's got the fun parts, it's got the funny parts, but it's also got the poignancy and the heartstring yeah. pulling. Yeah. So it's really got everything. If, challenges too, just right? Just like, again, yeah, challenges. Yeah. And you watch and you see people being ugly mm-hmm. and not being their best selves. And you see things maybe that you don't necessarily think you always see on the operatic stage, but then you realize that it's all humanity. It's just all the aspects of humanity. And that's what we see in The Marriage of Figaro. Yeah. We see the Count being a terrible person, but then we also see that beautiful forgiveness at the end. So it really does, I think I think that Jonathan Dove really took that mandate to heart to create that modern Marriage of Figaro and really did a beautiful job. I feel like opera... And April DeAngelis, let's not well, forget her. absolutely. Her words are impeccable. I feel like opera generally is meant to be a slice of life, but it's almost always a slice of a kind of life we no longer understand. This is a slice of life that we actually all have lived. Right, right. And uh, yeah, it's not uh, whalers on a ship. Right. And it's not the little prince, a fantasy, all magical, wonderful operas. It's real people in a real situation that we've all been in. Or even cat about town barbers getting married in <laughs> right. the 19th century. What? That's not, that's not your life? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> so anyway... I think it's a fun and emotionally satisfying evening of theater. Well, before we wrap up here, people can find out more about Flight and Utah Opera's production at utahopera.org. And thank you to everyone at home and on the go for listening today. If you haven't yet, it would really help us if you would subscribe, rate, and review the show wherever you get your podcasts. This helps us get new listeners. Be sure to visit usuo.org for information about this and other upcoming performances with Utah Symphony and Utah Opera. We hope to see you soon at a live performance. Until next time, I'm Jeff Counts. And I'm Carol Anderson. Thanks for listening. The Ghostlight Podcast is produced and edited by Robert Bedont. For questions about the show, you can reach us at ghostlight at usuo.org. The Utah Symphony Utah Opera Season sponsor is the George S. and Dolores Dore Eccles Foundation. <laughs>